Wall time, ramp time, offload delay. Should we stay or should we go? I think that's a line from The Clash somewhere, isn't it? Are ambulances being held hostage? Wolfberg and Worth have a view. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop, sponsored by Blink. been one of the hottest topics of the last few years. More volume, less staff, leading to huge delays at the ED door. If you follow the trend line, the arrival of Omicron could send even more to the ED. Frustrations are high and tempers are frayed and fingers are pointing. To help us unpack all of this are EMS lawyers Doug Wolfberg and Steve Worth from PWW, Page Wolfberg and Worth. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you, Rob. Good to be back. Great so, to be here. Yes. So, guys, you have now become the uh, the Tolkien of EMS. You've released the trilogy of uh, articles that are coming up uh, on EMS One and also a tip sheet on the subject of uh, ambulances held hostage. Can the hospital make you stay? Should we stay or should we go? And so that has got already some great downloads. There's some great advice and some great tips. Um, and also, of course, it's great to have you back. And, uh, you know, you've delivered uh, your views on this before, and we've uh, we've recorded that before. But obviously, with the advent of this new series of articles, I wanted to check back in with you and kind of just, uh, you know, get your views on where you think we are right now. And uh, I guess let's get straight into it. First question first, of course, one of the elephants in the EMS room is that we haven't got enough staff. The hospitals don't have enough staff, or that's what everybody's saying. Let's go back to root cause. You know, where do we start with all of this? That's a great overview, Rob. And I think the root cause is is a staffing issue. But I think the point of our article is to shift the conversation from making the hospital staffing problem the EMS agency staffing problem. All that really is is a transference of these staff shortages. We can't cover these incoming ER patients, so you've got to wait here until we, quote, release you. And that's the genesis of this. And the whole 30,000-foot overview of these three articles, this three-part series, is to try to recalibrate that conversation. This is a multi-layered, multifaceted problem with a lot of issues. There's ER throughput. There's staffing, as you've said. There's utilization. It's still a lot of primary care being sought in ERs. There's, there's just a multitude of issues. But the EMS agencies and hospitals have to collaborate on this. And all we're trying to do is say, well, this collaboration can't occur from the starting point that the hospitals are saying EMS can't leave until we release you, right? That's what they would have EMS systems believe. Till we sign the handoff of care signature, till we accept physically the handoff of the patient, you can't leave. That's why we called this series Ambulances Held Hostage. But the reality is, is that federal law makes it crystal clear that the patient is the legal responsibility of the hospital upon arrival on the hospital's property. And federal law also makes it clear that a hospital can ask EMS to stay with patients in times when the hospital staff is overwhelmed or busy with other cases. That is clearly an exception and not supposed to be the rule. But the fact that ambulances can be asked to stay under federal law means that it's discretionary, it's voluntary. Now, there may well be cases when that is appropriate, that EMS stay and remain with patients. 
but to insist on it or to refuse to, quote, release EMS until hospital says it's time, have the conversation, engage in collaborative dialogue, which is what we recommend, but start from the understanding that this is voluntary on the part of EMS. This is not assumed. It's, it can't be demanded by the hospitals. There's no legal requirement that EMS do it. So let's have the conversation, but let's have it from the perspective of a level playing field. Then let's talk. And that's we, we need to make sure we recalibrate that discussion. And that is the whole point of this series of articles. That was an amazing introduction. And actually, if I may say so, also an amazing conclusion. And uh, we, can, we can apply that at both ends of the conversation. But Steve, if you're the medic on the truck, you're coming into the ED and you are 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th in the line, where do you start? What do you do? What should you do? Well, first of all, it's extremely frustrating, as we all know. And the key point is that there has to be a policy in place ahead of time. If you can work with your hospitals ahead of time, as we've mentioned, uh, but the frontline medic on the street needs to seek somebody out in the emergency department and say, hey, here's our patient. We need to go. Uh, and uh, that's the most important thing is to, to reach out to somebody right away if there's a backlog of uh, stretchers in the hallway or what have you. And to uh, you know try to not engage in a, a dispute or an argument at the time, but uh, and if necessary, you know, get a get a supervisor to come in and assist as well. But a lot of this stuff needs to be worked out ahead of time. And uh, the other point of this is you got to get high level people involved at the hospitals. A lot of times the emergency department directors and people in charge there don't always convey the urgency of their problem high up into the uh, upper ranks of the facility and the hospital. So we really have to have those meetings ahead of time to work with the top level people so they see what a serious problem this is and lay this out on the line, as Doug said. You know, the reality is it's the hospital's responsibility here. They can't make their problem uh, our problem. But we got to do this in a cooperative way if possible. And the other point we made in these articles was to really provide some strategies and some tips on how to deal with it from the collaborative standpoint, as well as uh, if you don't get anywhere with that, now what do you do? And we offer some pretty good uh, suggestions along those lines as well. Maybe we can start sort of escalating, talking about how how we do escalate that up. But uh, what you've also just described, Steve, is a classic MCI. Lots of patients, not a lot of people to look after them, and command decisions need to be made by somebody quickly. And it's not the guy on the ground or the the medic facing the RN on the desk, which of course is where a lot of these uh, exchanges are occurring. It's adding to a lot of frustration. It's adding to a lot of angst and anger. How does somebody escalate this? What what are the steps? Well, you have meetings. You, you set up a meeting. You, you get to the folks at the hospital and say, look, this is a serious problem. One place uh, to start could be the compliance officer of the facility or go right to the CEO's office. We've had some good luck in doing that. And sometimes it involved getting legal counsel involved from the, from the facility, from the hospital. And sometimes that can help actually, even though lawyers can sometimes muddy the waters, so to speak, but getting uh, legal counsel involved can help because we could look at it objectively and you know, sort of take the emotion out of it a little bit and help bring the parties together and discuss this in a collaborative way. But the reality is, at the end of the day, something has to be done and some procedures have to be put in place. And sometimes unilaterally, the ambulance service has to communicate to the hospital, say, OK, well, here it comes. Uh, if we get down to level zero, we're going to have to leave. You know, and here's the conditions. You know, here's what we're going to do when we leave and let them know that ahead of time, have that policy communicated ahead of time 
so that uh, it's not a surprise at the time the medic you know, brings the patient in and has to get that unit back in service because the last thing you want to have is a ambulance sitting on the hallway in a hospital with a heart attack patient t 10 blocks away with no EMS. That just can't happen. It has to be corrected. The interesting thing, of course, is you, you, you Steve mentioned, you know, it's lawyer on lawyer. Um, but uh, how can we take those, as you say, those very steady discussions and actually bring them down to bring them down a level when we're not having legal counsel involved? What are the kind of key things we should be pointing out? We should be perhaps demanding or which we should be asking for? Well, I mean, let me say that I think these meetings are probably better held without lawyers, but, you know, and they're probably more productive. They need to be. There are some listening that may agree with that, but uh, keep yeah, going. <laughs> they need to be focused on operationalizing solutions and not just pitching legal arguments back and forth. So uh, but if it if it gets to that point, you know, agencies should have their legal counsel involved. But, you know, strategies, though. Are you know again? If we start from the notion that this is a level playing field, that these are voluntary requests and voluntary decisions by EMS agencies to choose to remain with patients inside the emergency department, then we can have some further discussions about well, let's quantify our unit hour costs or our costs of the time that we're providing care for hospital patients, and you know let's have a fair and reasonable discussion. If you're solution hospital is to use EMS staff to cover your responsibilities for these patients inside the hospital. Well, here is what we have, you know, calculated to be fair compensation for a unit hour of our staff's time. And, you know, let's start having conversations about replacing the capital that EMS is expending by caring for what are clearly hospital patients. And, you know, there's this notion that it's not the hospital's patient until we say, we say they are, until they've accepted the patient. Well, that's why I opened with that discussion about federal law. And that's not just to flex our legal muscles. It's to make sure that it's very clear that that is the hospital's patient at the moment we hit your property. If we're going to continue to care for your patient, let's discuss fair compensation uh, for that. Let's you know, negate, you know, this is not patient abandonment. And we talk about that in uh, part two of the of the series that, you know, there, there's some claims being made that hospitals will file, you know, some complaint that the EMS is abandoning patients. The legal definition of abandonment is I withdrew care and didn't make provisions for replacement care. How, how is that abandonment when I brought the patient to a higher level of care? You know, so uh, you know, so we're trying to just debunk some of these arguments that hospitals are making. So I think it's fair, you know, this is a, a multi-level problem, but let's have the conversation from a fair, neutral standpoint. Let's talk about the costs involved with this practice. Let's talk about replacement and fair compensation for those costs. Let's debunk these myths like you can only hand off care to somebody with equal or higher, you know, if you don't physically turn this patient over to a nurse or a physician, you're in trouble. I'm sorry if this patient is currently stable and I tell the receptionist in the ER that we're leaving and the patient's in the West hallway and here's their current uh, vitals and on a quick sheet that we wrote down. Uh, I'm sorry, but there's no legal impediment to doing that. So we're, we're trying to bust these myths so people can have these fair conversations. We don't have to wait till we get your handoff signature to be legally entitled to leave the emergency department. So let's just make sure we know that. A couple of other quick things. Let's measure our offload times. Let's start to quantify this problem. You know, Rob, of course, that California is way ahead of the pack nationally on measuring that. Let's get objective, quantifiable data. Let's measure the extent and the scope of the problem. 
then we can quantify the time. We can ask for that fair compensation. But, you know, let's make this a data-driven, evidence-based uh, approach. And, and I think we talk a lot about that. I want to come back to data, the cost of unit hours, potential anti-kickbacks in a second. But uh, Mtala has always been there. It's always been looming. We've often talked about it. But what I'm seeing now is people are actually opening up the website, filling in the forms, making the complaints or making the allegations or the or stating the issues. And it's now starting to happen. Are you seeing more and more folk now going down the reporting Mtala route than perhaps before in your experience? Well, I don't think we've seen too many complaints as of yet, but I think a lot of this, you know, once the education occurs and people realize the steps they can take, I think we're going to see more of them. Yeah, there have been Mtala complaints. Uh, and I think uh, to just tee off from what Doug mentioned concerning uh, basically education. And we were surprised, frankly, in dealing with some of these cases, how the nursing staff didn't understand the MTAL obligations. They didn't even realize that it was their responsibility once that patient came to the emergency department to conduct a prompt medical screening exam. So some of this, you know, these series of articles and other education is starting to open up some of the eyes. So I think we're going to see more complaints along these lines. But again, hopefully you can try to resolve these before the complaints start flying and you try to work and try to get some uh, upfront understandings, as Doug explained, so that uh, we, we bring that uh, playing field down to a level situation. Somebody once talked about we don't want to hit the nuclear option, which is going for entire. Right. But of course, the key for deterrence is both sides need to know that the other side is capable of that first strike. And therefore, you know, everything's going to be normal. Everything's going to be OK. And I suspect from talking to other colleagues that we actually haven't taken our MTALA submarine to periscope depth to let people know we're there. But I suspect people do now know we are there and, uh, you know, the, the, the trigger is out. That's kind of how I view things. We had this MTALA nuclear capability that we could use. Again, a bit of a militaristic World War III scenario there. But, <laughs> I love uh, the analogy. Can I, just sort of that, can I just comment on that briefly, Rob? Yeah. Um, that, you know, I, I don't want to mislead any of your listeners or the reader yeah. on EMS-1 to think that, you know, MTALA is going to be the cure-all. I mean, look, the federal government no. has got, you know, they're going to be overwhelmed, you know, with with their policing of hospitals and there's shortages. And, you know, filing a complaint isn't going to magically make staff appear uh, or clear backlogs no, or anything not. like that. So we, I don't want to mislead folks to think that that is some kind of magic bullet. But what we're really trying to say here is, again, I just want to reemphasize, and Steve sort of mentioned that, that through appropriate education, we can just say, all right, you know, we now know, <laughs> this is what EMS says to the hospitals, we now know that you've been sort of pulling the wool over our eyes for all these years that you won't release us and that it's involuntary that we stay. Well, guess what? We know better now. And, you know, we know that you know that that's, that's the case. Now that we all know this, right, let's have the conversations where, um, you know, this just does not become this prolonged indentured servitude that wrecks, uh, you know, EMS response capabilities for the community. So um, that that's really the main thing. It, uh, right. You know, almost a, uh, hey, you know, guess what we learned? And, you know, let's let's recalibrate that whole conversation just so it comes from a collaborative point of view and we can hopefully... Uh, let the hospitals know that this is no longer sort of their their call or their indentured servitude of, of EMS for as long as they say, right? Here's our ground rules. Here's how we're going to do it. 
And, uh, and I think that's important. And if I could just jump in real quick, you no. know, we really need to, as EMS leaders, it's our responsibility to our people to have these meetings and to work very hard to try to get these issues resolved with the facilities uh, because it's downright demoralizing to walk you go into an emergency department with a patient and be told to wait on the wall there you know we have stories of people bringing their lunch with them you know to sit there and eat their meal while they're waiting there for an hour or two hours on the hallway of the hospital and uh, that's a deterrent to wanting to become an EMS practitioner when <laughs> you get there with the patient and you spend more time in the hospital waiting uh, than you are with the patient in the back of your ambulance so I think we have an obligation to really really push this issue and as a sidebar it's an interesting discussion I was having here in California last week around the fact that if I have got to sit there for eight hours six hours an hour whatever then of course the the tension between the medic and the, the the person you know manning the facility also builds because you can't lean on my desk you can't stand over there you have to sit in the corner you mm-hmm. and there's nowhere for us to do so there's a whole kind of world series of welfare issues for both hospitals and leadership to make sure that you know if we have to do this and this whole podcast's about we don't have to but inevitably we have to so you know think think about the guys that us that are going to be stuck there until we resolve it and what home comforts do we actually offer them and uh, you know it's, it's a long stand a long wait with no respite as well before we go further i just want to take a second to have the mid-show read from our sponsor blink given the current workforce challenges retention is now more important than ever By ensuring that field staff feel appreciated, informed and listened to, Blink's all-in-one employee app is currently helping EMS providers across the nation to improve their retention rate significantly. With Blink, frontline employees are able to communicate with their managers, receive company updates and gain access to key systems like payroll and scheduling, all within an easy-to-use mobile app. If you're interested in finding out how Blink can help your organisation to improve employee retention and engagement, then please visit www.joinblink.com forward slash demo to learn more. This is George Monk from Blink. Thank you for listening. As always, thank you very much. That was the silky tones of George reading the Blink ad. Uh, He'll be back with us next time. Coming on back, uh, please also follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate us and review us on the platform in which you're listening on. So we go up the searchability rates. Coming back to you guys, um, the tip sheet that you guys produced uh, is exceptionally useful. I commend that everybody visits uh, ems1.com and uh, one of the three articles that you guys have produced in order to uh, download that, and it gives you a fairly good checklist. But if I may, let's just do a quick fire round, and I'm going to throw you one of your own questions, and then you're going to give me a a one-paragraph answer. Hands up is going to go first. Thank you, Steve, for putting your hand up. So... (laughs) For the benefit of the record, he didn't put his hand up. I just pointed at him on the camera. (laughs) Question one, when does a patient become the hospital's responsibility? As soon as the patient comes to the hospital, physically, or is within 250 yards of the hospital. Two points. Uh, Doug, uh, can the hospital require the EMS crew to remain with the patient? No. Uh, It's very clear under federal law that the hospital can make that request. Uh, but inherent in the right to make a request is the right to say no to it. Can the EMS crew leave the patient with someone lesser qualified? Yes, absolutely. To any responsible person in the hospital. It doesn't have to be an RN. Uh, it can be someone else who is capable of handling the patient. 
Absolutely. That's sort of a misnomer that's been floated around for many years that you have to transfer the patient to a higher level of care. Well, as Doug said, you're in the hospital. That's the higher level of care. Can EMS staff refuse to provide care outside of their scope of practice? Absolutely. Not only can they, they should. Uh, If a hospital either directly or implicitly puts pressure on a provider or outright asks them to do something, administer a drug, use a device, something that they're either A, unfamiliar with, or B, that's outside their scope of practice to administer or operate, it is a ticket to liability if the EMSA provider agrees to do that. Right. So there'll be no clamshells on our watch. So just to be very clear on that. Going back down to how one demonstrates to our, our colleagues at the hospital that we are you know, fiscally hurting, you talked about the cost of unit hours. I know that in some places that people have already sent invoices for the use of the staff. And of course, they have, you know, by and large, kind of been ignored, I think, from what I've heard anecdotally. The data, though, is clearly important, right? Absolutely. And I, I know we've We've been uh, in the in the loop of giving advice to some of the agencies that you might be thinking of, Rob, that have been starting to send invoices. And clearly, in the absence of a written contract or an express agreement, the que- you know it's highly questionable whether a hospital has the legal responsibility to pay an invoice that comes out of the blue. But again, if if we all know from where we're coming, and we can quantify that and demonstrate the amount of time, and then translate that into the dollar value of that time. Uh, there is no reason that that can't be the basis for a contract negotiation or discussion so that, you know, we do have a legitimate basis to, uh, to come up with those charges and have those contractual negotiations. It should be no different than any other types of services we sell. If we sell non-emergency transport services to a nursing facility, if we sell standby services to an event sponsor, when we sell our services, we make a determination of what those services cost. And that is exactly what we're doing when we're providing care for hospital patients. This should be no different of a data-driven, cost-based discussion. And Rob, in some of these cases, even though they may not want to pay the invoice, it's gotten their attention and has brought them to the table. And it shows the dollar value of what EMS is providing to benefit the hospital. And that gets into the whole point, you know, they're asking us to stay. Well, ASK, that, those three uh, letters can also spell AKS, anti-kickback statute potential violation. And uh, basically, this definitely can get their attention. At least the legal folks can bring this to the uh, attention of the leadership at the facility. That, hey, they're providing something of monetary value to us because we can't provide the staff to immediately accept and deal with these patients. Boy, that that. The anti-kickback statute says if you provide something of value in return for the referral of federal health care business, that can be a violation of the law, especially, you know, in a case where the ambulance company has a relationship with the hospital where it is getting referrals for non-emergency transports and other types of things. Yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's an area that does get the attention of the higher ups. There's also a double whammy in certain EMS agencies that are working under contract to local EMS authorities or to local governing bodies also have it in their uh, contracts that they are not held harmless for being late for the next patient when all the ramblances are delayed at the hospital and therefore incur um, response time fines, um, which can run into six figures. And so that's the other piece that uh, people need to think about, that uh, whilst we're still on the wall, 
our our governing body are fining us for something that's totally not within our span of control and and, and that i know that is something that uh, has been in the past in my previous employments near and dear to my heart that how can i respond if i can't get out, get out to respond um, exactly. and that's, that's another thing that needs to be thought, thought through well that's a great point and you know you and i have talked off air about this on many occasions yes. rob and you know uh, especially in California and in other states where there's, you know, performance-based contracts, um, you know, there there has to be a recognition of the fact that these, this is a situation beyond the control of the ambulance service. But secondly, I, I want to speak to the broader issue of how EMS agencies need to be focused on the health of the EMS system. And it startled me, and we talk about it a little bit in part one of this three-part series, that some EMS agency policies, these local agencies that have regulatory oversight at the local or county level, are promulgating policies that in some cases are counterproductive to the EMS system. They're, they're doing the hospital's bidding. And it could well be that some of the medical committees on, and these, count, these uh, agencies are dominated by you know, physicians who work in these hospitals, who are coming at it from the other side. Whatever the case is, it is startling to me that some of these EMS oversight agencies, which should be supporting and ensuring the viability and sustainability of an EMS system, are instead pushing these policies or including provisions in there that may mean well, but are completely counterproductive to the health of an EMS system. So one of the one of the issues here is that you know the hospitals are big boys and girls. They can take care of themselves. They can bring whatever regulatory pressure and connections they have to bear. But EMS oversight agencies and EMS support agencies need to be making sure that they are advocating for the EMS system and not promulgating policies that are basically just playing into this problem. Exactly. You know, we need to work out who's on the team and uh, who we need to perhaps persuade to adjust their focus in order to ensure that uh, things flow through smoothly. Sadly, this isn't new to me. Uh, 13 years ago, before I jumped the pond and came to the U.S., uh, ambulance hospital delays in my area of the UK was a thing. It was a regular thing. It was, you know, we did everything from send the afternoon tea, as you would say, uh, down to the, the A&E, the accident emergency. Um, there was one time where we deployed our entire emergency um, shelter system outside of the, uh, the accident emergency department because we had so many ambulances sitting there working for the National Health Service under one boss. I was quickly summoned to the Strategic Health Authority for a dressing down because of the, the look of it. But actually, that's where the periscope depth... Uh, analogy came from because after that whilst we didn't deploy the tents once a, once a month I'd have the emergency response guys drive around the parking lot of the hospital as I called it patrolling at periscope depth just to let us know that let them know that we were there it's it's not a new thing but it's one of those perennial issues that we have to kind of work through for everybody's sanity yeah and thanks for the international perspective Rob and uh, <laughs> what folks listening can't see is me holding up a copy of a study that's been on my desk for a few days now uh, from the UK that's titled delayed hospital handovers impact assessment of patient harm by the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives uh, over in the UK. So uh, there's some, some great uh, points in that study, and uh, that's something that uh, folks should take a look at as well, because there are lessons to be learned, even though they don't operate under MTALA. You know, the root issues are often still the same, and there, there are some lessons to be learned. Right. And actually, ACE, the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives, produced some fantastic educational material and uh, 
perhaps that particular document, which I'm very familiar with, Doug, we can perhaps share that as well in the in the show notes because again, it just gives us a an idea of what they're doing, but B, it will it shows you that uh, you know we're all in it together here. And that's something that we can perhaps certainly do. And Rob, it also makes the case that there can be patient harm uh, inherent in these delays. And, you know, and I think, you know, one of the other things and, and I, you know, I, I also wanted to find a place to sneak this in because, you know, as you know, and I think some of your listeners know, Steve and I both spent years in the field as yep. providers ourselves. And look, this always has to be about patient care. And, you know, as a lawyer, as lawyers, we tell people that if you do what's right for the patient, that also, in most cases, has the benefit of being the best defense legally, right? And, you know, we don't want somebody to go out and say, oh, I heard these EMS lawyers say on a podcast, we can pick up and leave whenever we want. You know, our patients in the middle of a cardiac event or in, in arrest or whatever. Well, we're leaving now because we heard a podcast, you know. So yep. obviously, we've got to make decisions that are clinically sound. But look, yes. we're, we're putting policies together right now on non-transport situations, treatment on scene, treatment in place, ET3, you know, part of this has to be, let's do better at discriminating. I don't mean that in a bad way, but making proper clinically defensible determinations of what patients don't even have to go to get into that, that endless queue of hell uh, in the first place. You know, let, so if we're doing that effectively, which we are with good clinical oversight and good clinical decision-making, there's no reason we can't make similar clinically based decisions about what patients are going to be fine sitting in a waiting room if we offload them from our stretcher to a waiting room chair and have no adverse outcomes. We're doing a good job at making those determinations pre-hospitally. We can just as defensively make those determinations inside the hospital. So if we're, if we're making good clinically sound decisions, as I said, that almost always has the benefit of being the right thing legally as well. That's an excellent point. And the kind of downstream issues of tip, tilt, treatment in place, treatment in lieu of transport are initiatives, ET3, to not take the patient to the hospital potentially in the first place if they're considerably low acuity. Again, another international you know, lesson from, from my days of my yore were that I wasn't charged with admission avoidance. I was charged with arrival avoidance. In other words, if I can create and craft a pathway to send that patient down to other than the ER, the A&E, the ED, then I should do that. And perhaps these things in the future, eventually, um, place your bets now, may actually help us do that. I'm not convinced we, we, we're quite there yet, but uh, mm -hmm. that's certainly something that uh, we should think about as well is, you know, how can we stop the patient getting there in the first place if they don't need to be there in the first place? And once they get there, the, the hospital really needs to consider uh, reverse triage, you know, moving some of those patients out of the hospital emergency department waiting area into a fast track area or some other place to, to make some room for the ambulances coming in. And that's Absolutely. something I think more hospitals are starting to realize. Shout out to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital in the UK. The, the, the triage officer was a primary care physician who put his arm right. out and went down the hall, primary care, down the hall, primary care, down go. the hall, every yep. third person. Oh, you might need an ER. And, and, and that, so that was mm -hmm. the That's a great point because it doesn't mean that just because my patient came in on a stretcher that my sniffly patient, you know, my patient who only has the sniffles beats out the patient who was already in a bed with the sniffles. It, the, the appropriate issue is should they be in a hospital in an ER bed, you know, and, and that, you know, you said it, you know, brilliantly, Rob, I, I really enjoyed hearing the way you summarize that because it, it is, it is right sizing the, these, these resources. Um, and look, we know that there's a, there's an overutilization of emergency services. We know there's an overutilization of emergency departments. It is still a, a frequent source 
for people to seek primary care. Um, so, but that is also the ticket to why the vast majority of cases that EMS brings in don't need continuing EMS care inside the hospital because we know the numbers of truly serious emergent or critical patients uh, just the, from that data point alone are going to be few and far between. So we're going to be able to make these determinations to leave the hospital without adverse patient consequences in the vast majority of cases we just know that statistically. So let's clinically determine what those appropriate yep. ones are and then make the correct decisions. Tell the hospitals this is what our policy is going to be and then let them either go find more staff or take whatever actions they're going to take. But holding us involuntarily is no longer going to be one of the options in your tool bag. First of all, I always love to give you a robism to take away, Doug. You know that. Um, and, and secondly, you've touched on the sort of another another issue within the Venn diagram of EMS disaster, which of course is driving there on lights and sirens in order to wait for three hours. <laughs> and so we, we we want to stop that too. Hey, we're nearly on time. I'm going to ask you one final question each, and, and, and uh, I'll tell you what they are first. So you can prepare your answers. So, Steve, uh, what do you want to say to the medics on the truck that are in the middle of all of this? And Doug, what do you want to say to the leaders of those medics on the truck? So, Steve. Well, I think the medics have to be uh, aware that they've got to report these problems to get their supervisors involved. And I think the leaders really need to focus on taking care of uh, uh, those who take care of those patients and let, let the folks on the front line know that they're working hard on this problem. And uh, hopefully uh, that will help because oftentimes I think as medics, we tend to think, hey, it's a problem with our leadership too. And it's important that, uh, that uh, we deal with that. You've, you've hit on one of my most used robisms, Doug, and that is communication is always the first casualty of any operation. So keep the communication going with everybody. Um, Doug, what are you saying up the stairs and into the corner office? Well, I think the leaders need to do everything they can. And I think their people need to see that they're doing everything they can to address this problem. And that uh, even if that means, and again, we are pro-collaboration, pro-meetings, pro-discussion, pro-mutual solutions, but in some systems that has just proven to be an impossibility. And I think EMS leaders need to be EMS leaders and show their people that they're prepared to take proper, safe, uh, patient-centered, clinically defensible, unilateral decisions if and when necessary to keep these EMS systems functioning and to support the people uh, that they employ and that, you know, that are, that are there to serve uh, their communities, that we're here, you know, they're there for their community. So the leaders need to be there for them. And we're going to take these appropriate actions, even unilaterally, if need be. Excellent and wise words. So everybody, you can visit ems1.com and read Steve and Doug's uh, Amblet's Hell Hostage Trilogy. It's a classic. Uh, please also, when you get to the bottom of their article, download the tip sheet, which is going to give you the top tips. Uh, and that is essential reading this week. And turn that reading into action within your organization. So guys, the usual question, how can we get hold of you and follow you? Best way is to visit our website, pwwemslaw.com. We are also on all the usual social media channels, most prominently, I would say, on LinkedIn, uh, Paige Wolfberg and Worth. Uh, and then if you search us under EMS1, uh, you can find th this series and all of our uh, articles as regular columnists there. 
but uh, those are a few places. And uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at UKRobL1 and also over on LinkedIn. And again, if you go to EMS1, you can catch uh, my previous articles, podcasts, a few of which, of course, are with the esteemed Steve and Doug. So that's about all for now. Thank you very much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for these wise words. This show, of course, is going to be up on EMS1 and on the various platforms in which you can listen to the podcast. Uh, Please have a listen. Please tell your friends this is vitally important information. That's about all from me. I've been Rob Lawrence. They've been uh, Wolfberg and Wirth. And until next time, bye for now.